<laughs> Hi everybody, it's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. There are many people entering the podcast whose last names, sometimes first names, I've had to inquire about correct pronunciation of. A new friend, Dr. Kelly Gerard, and I said that in correct Gerard fashion? Yes. Oh, Gerard or Gerard, actually, is another possibility. Gerard, yes. Gerard, Gerard. Stephen Gerard. Has a very Stephen idea. Gerard, but that's, I, oh, that's with double R, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Um, so mine is a sli- slightly softer version of that, but not the... Uh, Kelly Gerard. Not the French. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we're, we're not here to talk about France. We're sort of here, I guess, for me to learn something about your work... But let's start out by asking you, what's turning you on at the moment? What's interesting you right now? It doesn't have to be what you're working on, but what's going on in the world that's clicking with you? One thing that I really enjoyed recently was holding a workshop with my housemate uh, Mm -hmm. at our house. Because we recently moved into a very large house. Uh, It has six bedrooms and uh, it's an overwhelming amount of space. And And there are uh, two of you. No, there's there's now six of us in there, but... uh, but we want to use the space for a range of a range of things other than just living in it because it is this very huge space and uh, and we've all been a bit overwhelmed by it. So one thing that we did with this space on the weekend was hold a workshop about reimagining Perth. And the intention of this is to of the workshop was to think about uh, our vision of the future because. Often, uh, in activist spaces, when thinking about the targets of, act, uh, of advocacy and, and, uh, and the intentions, uh, it's very easy to shut down uh, thinking about the possibilities, given that those possibilities are so very far away. And I think that uh, you know, the argument being that this often then limits our thinking as to what is possible and the steps to how this might be achieved. So we, we held this uh, collaborative, collaborative writing workshop on the weekend and there was about 12 people there. And uh, yes, it was a very fun thing. So that, that is what is exciting me at the moment. But that's quite far removed from my research. And I guess what that brings up for me is that a lot of activism is reactive and you're trying to do something... I hate this word, actually, I'm about to use, but proactive. Is that the yes, idea? Yeah. And not simply say, this development's terrible, these people are all corporate bastards, the mm. state's corrupt, stop this, stop that, yeah. but instead look at do this, do that, or involve, involve, whatever. Is that yeah. the, the difference, would you say? I guess not having political activism defined by what is immediately possible, mm. Uh, mm. but thinking about activism uh, in a much more encompassing so we spoke about a range of things. We began by everybody putting forward questions that we wanted to talk about in reimagining Perth, mm. then uh, writing down what that vision of Perth might look like or any other any other place, uh, and then talking about concrete steps as to how that vision might be achieved. So we looked at a range of things like, uh, you know, how can communities respond collectively to domestic mm. violence? Uh, uh, a colleague at UWA is involved... This is at University of Western Australia, which is where Kelly is a professor. A um, colleague at uh, UWA is involved in the uh, deaths in custody uh, movement here in Perth, and uh, he was uh, speaking about his involvement in campaigns uh, to prevent the expansion of uh, Hakia Prison here in Perth. 
Could you tell us about deaths in custody? Because most listeners to this will be outside Australia, mm. and while they'll understand the basic idea, they probably won't know it's pretty racialized nature. I assume mm. it's still racialized. It is, it right? indeed. Yeah. Uh, so deaths in custody is a, a, a movement around organising around uh, the occurrence of deaths in custody, which are often taking place uh, in regional communities uh, and uh, uh, the victims are Indigenous Australians. Uh, so the most recent focus of the ca this campaign was the death of Miss Jew, uh, and I'm not entirely familiar with this case, so I won't speak to the exact details mm -hmm. of it because I'm, I'm not fully abreast of it. Uh, but the, the uh, campaign, uh, you know, often these deaths are occurring in the context of people not receiving medical assistance, uh, appropriate medical assistance or uh, other, other facilities. Um, yes. Right. So. And Aboriginal Australians, Indigenous Australians, historically were 2% of the population and 40% of the prison population. I don't know what it's yes, like now, yes. but it's an appalling it is, statistic. It is. Isn't it? Uh, um, it's, it's on par or if not more than uh, the disparity that we see in the United States. Right, right. And you mentioned the expansion of a prison. Yes, yeah, so uh, from what I understand, Hakia Prison is, uh, there are plans to expand the prison uh, to accommodate, which is a high security men's prison. The pl there are plans afoot to expand the prison so as to accommodate uh, the uh, lack of or the uh, the lack of prison beds uh, available in a low security women's prison bandy up. So there's an expansion plan for Hakia uh, to uh, put move. women into a high security men's environment. Yeah, yeah. Smart. Yeah. So there will be a yes, but it, yeah. So the the movement is uh, more generally about uh, uh, looking at the conditions, uh, your response to crime and... Right, uh, right. So that's one, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. it's just to give context to yes, the listeners, yeah, you know. Yeah. So, okay, that's one example of somebody who's an activist scholar, I guess, in this yes, case, your colleague yeah, there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, so we were talking uh, a lot about uh, potential responses to that and things that have been pursued and, and possibilities, and then thinking about what, uh, uh, you know, a vision of Perth that doesn't involve uh, incarceration for or incarceration generally, or incarceration for, uh, for petty crimes, like there was a recent case of a, a woman stealing a box of tampons and ending up in prison for a crime of, uh, you know, property theft of five to six dollars or something like that, so... And yes. people may be interested to know that some of the first post-invasion white Australians were of course sent to this country for thefts of that kind, yeah. which... Australian school students are taught as barbaric, mm. but which still go on. And I don't know if it's still the case, I haven't lived here for a very long time, but public drunkenness was a crime in much of Australia that essentially was created to put Aboriginal people in jail. Mm. Yeah. They were the ones to whom this indictment was yeah. applied yeah. again and again. So, yeah, extraordinary. Yeah. So there are a few um, right. aspects to this, particularly here in Australia and elsewhere, um, the privatisation of prison services as well. I was going to ask if that's a big yes, deal here. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yes. Uh, indeed. Wow. <laughs> Which, you know, it seems a, uh, you know, there's this element of a return to the, uh, to the poor laws in the UK. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. comes with this you yeah. know, imperative yeah. for uh, expanding. Yeah, sure. No, very, very serious matter. 
Okay, so can you give us maybe one other story from the workshop? Maybe something about um, what you were thinking before we go on to... Yeah, so one, one thing that I... Your job. Um, so that was a, a, a important part of the discussion that we mm. had on Sunday. And uh, one thing that interests me in particular that I, I raised at the workshop was how community, communities can respond to domestic violence in collective fashions. Uh, and... Uh, we spoke about what a vision without domestic violence would look like mm. and mm. Uh, the uh, various facets of, of, that, uh, of that vision. So, you know, in, in an ideal world, um, non-gendered relationships and, and childcare arrangements that are non-gendered and, and uh, uh, an acceptance of relationships in a, in a much broader fashion rather than the nuclear family and, and uh, thinking about I think about those ideas um, but on a, on a practical level we were also talking um, about uh, responses to domestic violence and uh, one of the participants at the workshops a, a psychologist and he was speaking about uh, some research looking into emotion focused uh, uh, discussion groups within prisons uh, where uh, people in the prisons were in there on charges of domestic violence and, and getting people to speak about why they had abused their partners and, uh, and coming at domestic violence uh, from uh, the response of uh, looking at uh, people's uh, circumstances and, and emotional response that led to uh, the abuse, them to abuse their partners rather mm. than simply responding with uh, incarceration. Mm, mm. Because the stories we hear are from the victims and from the state, understandably enough. Mm. And there's value in trying to comprehend why these things are done in the yeah. eyes of the perpetrators. Is that yes. the idea? Yes. Uh, so I guess that's one aspect of yes. it. Um, yeah. But uh, as a part mm. of that also, uh, um, um, uh, challenging uh, hypermasculinity mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, um, yeah, getting perpetrators to engage with why they might be responding in this way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, that's interesting. I think making that move to a sociological as well as a psychological understanding of these things, such that one is engaging in a debate about gender and power, is really the complex thing because there can be particularly, I suspect, with those who are incarcerated, class aspects to this, mm -hmm. even though domestic violence goes across mm -hmm. class, race, age, etc. Right. So once you move into these categories of feminism, you move into a, not necessarily a more scholarly approach, but one that derives from particular theories of seeing the world that are not necessarily common to many of the people you're going to be talking to. So there's an interesting vocabulary translation challenge, I suspect, about switching codes, mm. you know, um, so, wow, that's exciting. So, and then connected to your interest in getting beyond domestic violence is the idea of, in fact, problematizing the entire sort of bourgeois monogamous basis of heterosexuality. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Just to... <laughs> Throw a couple of old footy terms out there, you know, a couple of baseball terms. Indeed, right? indeed, yeah. And and also, I think there are so there's 
yeah, many aspects with it. It's also mm. uh, overcoming mm. the isolation that Perth's poor urban planning is a... Uh, uh, um, those yes. geographic aspects yes. to it as well. Yes. Um, uh, in looking at uh, the lack, how lack of services and infrastructure yeah. through urban sprawl uh, has led to right. uh, isolation within so the home. why urban planning should be done in, t in terms of tender and not in terms <laughs> of <laughs> low-density housing? Yeah. I'd never thought of it that way, but I guess... Yeah. No, no, I mean, you're making a revolutionary call, I get it. <laughs> yeah, so... Th um, yeah, so... But I, no, I was really thinking, because I've, I've lived the last 25 years in the United States, the last 10 in L.A., and how Perth suburban sprawl really feels like Southern California. Yeah. And the terrible... I only lived three years of my life in Perth, but the sort of terrible isolation that can come from this yeah. and the feeling of an, a certain kind of entrapment, not akin to incarceration, of course, but nevertheless entrapment that yeah, so many yeah. people, and historically, of course, women in particular and children have experienced... Yeah, and, and the uh, um, people that, uh, through, I mean, their, their physical aspects of their day, they, you know, because of urban sprawl, get into a car, drive to work, park that car, drive, go into yeah. the workplace, yeah. and at the end of the day, yeah. get back in the car and drive right. home. And there's literal, if no, opportunity for any engagement right. with another individual. Right. Uh, right, right. So I think those isolating aspects of urban sprawl and, and mm, cities mm, designed mm, around mm. Uh, cars... Uh, then also contribute to things like domestic violence and then mm -hmm. lack of mm -hmm. engagement with the community or, or yeah. awareness, uh, people's awareness of these things going on and uh, and uh, their capacity for to reach out or for community to respond to that. Going back about 40 years, I remember being struck by a sentence that a person now known as Raywen Connell wrote in those days, R.W. Connell or Bob Connell, uh, which was the insanity of a car-based transportation system. Mm. I was a teenager. I never thought of it as insane. I just thought it was better when you got driven directly to where <laughs> to you wanted to go. Needed to go. Yes, <laughs> right. Yes. I mean that sort of simplicity. That's but us. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you think about it in the context of the heterosexual family and its quiet as well as its loud violence, of course, in these contexts, in in places of suburban sprawl, then that is a core component yeah. of the gender politics because of this isolation that all parties experience, or at least mm. so it seems. Fascinating. So one last question about the workshop. What's the next step? We'd like to hold another one, uh, and I think what was exciting for my housemate Sky and I in holding this workshop was that there, uh, it wasn't just people immediately from our immediate social network. Um, so we interested in how we use the space uh, and, uh, and the possibilities uh, for it um, and we'd also like to reach out to involving people that are not uh, part of our social networks already mm. so that was quite exciting for us so we will be holding further writing workshops uh, and uh, thinking about whether or not something more direct comes out of this in terms of people very we're very interested in uh, the deaths in custody yeah. uh, movement and, and, um, and organising around that. So thinking about if there are immediate uh, people's immediate involvement in movements like that. Uh, but I guess Sky and I are just more generally interested in tiny actions mm -hmm. <laughs> and everyday mm. politics. Mm. Sure, so, sure. 
Yes, we're not sure, I guess, is the short answer to that question, but we are planning further activities like that one. Well, speaking of everyday politics, I, know, I, know, I guess this isn't the part of Asia you work on so much, but you're what is sometimes called an Asianist, a political scientist who works on Asia, is that yeah, fair to say? Yeah. Uh, I've been very struck over the last couple of days by what's going on in London, where I live, where the British government is so desperately presenting itself as China's best partner because there's a big state visit. And this reminded me very much of when I spent time in Australia in the late 80s, early 90s, when there was this pitiful attempt to claim Australia as Asian, basically in an attempt for economic growth, mm. not bearing in mind the horrendous history and contemporaneity of Australian anti-Asian racism and so on. And I wondered if you could tell me a bit about that bit about Australia's terrible history. <laughs> well, Austra for example, the desire to join the Association of Southeast Asian mm. Nations, the desire to claim itself as Asian, which this university rabbits on about constantly, yeah. which the newspapers go on about. What yeah. is that desire? Uh, well, I find it interesting in these, these uh, attempts to engage in with Asia uh, and present Australia as part of Asia, because it's often is uh, uh, this is very much present but when in attending a lot of forums about engaging Asia a lot mm. of the discussion comes back to Asia as either a trade opportunity or mm. a security threat and it revolves mm. around mm. these two, mm. <laughs> two paradigms which mm. in terms of engaging Asia it seems a very a little very, reductive yes. <laughs> one interesting factor here I guess is that Maybe 20 or 30 years ago, two government departments merged, foreign affairs and trade, which had historically been separate. I wonder if that's part of it in the Australian governmental machinery too, that those things are now so wedded, mm. perhaps more than ever before. So you get the security people, the long-term terror of Indonesia, for example, as a massive Asian nation nearby with a huge and powerful military historically dominant in the country, you know, and all of that. Uh, along with all the domino theories of the 50s and 60s, right? Merging with the idea of opportunity, opportunity, opportunity monetarily. And in the case of Western Australia, I guess historically, reliant on the big boom of Japan mm. and now the big boom of China yeah. for its resource minerals diplomacy and whatnot, mm. right? But yeah, it's interesting. So it's always about there are risk and an opportunity, never what could we learn and if we really want to engage, what are the things we could exchange about cultural politics? And I guess uh, engaging with the uh, high levels, high, high migration of people from Asia to Australia. Uh, oh, is that a big deal? Uh, yeah, it doesn't seem to be very much part of the discussion. It, these uh -huh. these uh, um, trade and, and security tends to dominate, but that really overlooks you know, Australia's composition <laughs> in a lot of ways. The, the changing population. Yeah. So how did you get involved in Asia in the first place? What was your engagement point, as it were? Uh, my dad is Malay. Uh-huh. And uh, so I travelled there um, with family in Malaysia. Uh, I've travelled there a lot as a child. And uh, then as uh, a young adult, uh, I travelled a lot, did most of my kind of gap travel experiences uh -huh. uh, in Asia. Oh. And that was just uh -huh. coming from an interest in, uh, in I guess, uh, 
develop, re, development related concerns and uh -huh. poverty and inequality. And, and was dad, if I can, if you don't mind asking, was he Chinese Malay, Malay Malay, something else? Uh, my what dad is uh, Eurasian. Eurasian? So, uh, uh, was he in a situation where, in terms of racial formations in Malaysia, life was not going to be great for him? Most definitely. Yeah. And so his yeah. family... That's why I asked the yes, question. Yeah, yeah, no, what dad, uh, my dad's family came to Australia uh, because of uh, because of the um, uh, Bumiputra policies and, and, how, and their expectations as to how that would shape their life. And they did with a lot of other family and friends. Right, right, right. No, I, I had a, when I lived in Perth, I had a housemate whose family was Chinese Malay, and they all left when the children were becoming teenagers mm. because of the limitations on the capacity to go on at school, which listeners may not know about that you're referring to. No, so that's interesting. So you had a, a powerful originary connection mm. that, that drove you on and then other concerns about development, poverty and so on. So you have gone on to publish a huge amount about this stuff. So maybe you could tell people a bit about that. Um, so I... I began by looking at my research uh, throughout my PhD was focused on the Association of Southeast Asian Nations and in particular looking at uh, an agenda to include civil society organisations in policy making. So my, I guess this brought together my interests around development issues in Southeast Asia and, uh, and um, activism. So looking at how the Association of Southeast Asian Nations in going through a huge restructure and revamp uh, why and how it was consulting civil society groups and policy making uh, and the impacts of these consultations. Can I show my ignorance here? I didn't yeah. know that ASEAN, which is the acronym used for this organisation, I guess, still, had gone through a massive restructuring. So would you mind you know, yeah, so this has enlightening been taking, me a bit? This has been taking place since uh, the Asian economic crisis, since 1990, that, occurred, that emerged in 1997. With Malaysia as one of its hearts, actually. Yes, right? indeed. Yeah, yeah. Um, so after that crisis, there was a lot of criticism of ASEAN as an institution, given that it was unable to assist uh, member states with economic recovery. It had only just put together a free trade agreement. It was in no position to be offering short-term lending capacity to affected states. And so the IMF was involved in uh, assisting countries, some countries, uh, with uh, great detriment in some cases. Uh, and so there was a lot of criticism of ASEAN as an institution, what its purpose was, and, and, and uh, a lot of criticism of its practices. And then, and these criticisms were quite widely acknowledged by the Secretary General at the time, as well as heads of state. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, after that, uh, in the early two thousands, we saw the push to revamp the institution. Uh, and the key way in which this has been done is reorganising the institution, very much similar to the European Union. So it's modelled around three pillars, uh, or three communities. Uh, and uh, the ASEAN economic community, the ASEAN political security community, and the ASEAN socio-cultural community. The key one there is, is the ASEAN economic community. It's a single market that will entail the free flow of goods and services and the freer movement of capital labour, which is an important word in that context. Mm. Uh, so People are never allowed to move the way that 
No. Things are, are we? And capital, in this context as well, it's been an attempt uh, very, to, very much for states to continue to uh, retain the capacity to monitor uh, uh, capital movements. Uh, so... George Soros, not their favourite man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's the key uh, oh, great. Okay, aspect thanks. of what's going and on. And where's the civil society bit? Yeah, so, there's, uh, so there, there was the restructure around these three communities and then in uh, developing the ASEAN Economic Community and, and, and revamping the institution more broadly, there was this claim of making ASEAN more people-oriented was the terminology that was used. And as a part of this agenda uh, to make ASEAN more people-friendly uh, and uh, more focused on the region's citizens, uh, there were... A, there have been uh, the expansion of policy-making processes to include civil society organisations. Uh, and this has occurred alongside uh, other related agendas like establishing a regional human rights body uh, and uh, a body, an agency devoted to focusing on the rights of women and children. So mm. a more encompassing association mm. and uh, one that claims to be more focused on uh, people's concerns. And how does that relate to just debates between human rights as per Human Rights Watch or the Universal Declaration and the notion of Asian values? Yeah, so the Asian values argument that was put forward by Mahathir and Lee Kuan Yew in the 1990s uh, was an attempt to confine uh, human rights governance to the national scale and counter the increasing acceptance of the universalism of human rights. Uh, the Asian values uh, ideology very much came, uh, uh, came or was challenged by the uh, Asian, Asian economic crisis uh, given the, uh, the related aspects of the argument that on collectivism and, and uh, this was then linked to cronyism and crony capital uh, which were argued to be the core of the Asian economic crisis. So a lot of these arguments came unstuck when the Asian mm. economic crisis... And they came from Malaysia and Singapore specifically? Malaysia, the, uh, so Mahathir and Lee Kuan Yew were the key proponents mm -hmm. of the oh. Asian values ideology. Uh, but it has had an interesting take-up, the Asian values ideology in China recently, and uh, strong support when I was in Hong Kong for six months for a research fellowship, Elizabeth, yeah, strong support from students uh, there, which is I, quite interesting. No, it is, I think, because China was gung-ho on the Universal Declaration until Tiananmen Square, mm. since which time it's advocated human rights in one country. Mm. Stalinist notion yeah, of the these things, that right? Human rights are, are, are culturally determined and, and national, and, and as mm. a part of that, nationally, mm. uh, their governance is nationally confined. So you did your research into this notion of a new expansive understanding of the association and the role of civil society within that. Yeah. Within that. So yeah. I, I was looking at the different channels. For which civil society groups can uh, contribute their ideas to policy making uh, mm -hmm. because 
there was this uh, notion of an, uh, a people-centered ASEAN uh, or people-oriented ASEAN mm. in various incarnations mm. of this idea. Uh, and then alongside that, uh, um, policymakers establish new channels for participation by civil society organisations. So in this project, I was interested in looking at how the boundaries of participation are determined in these channels. So who decides... Uh, who can participate, who mm. determines how people participate in these policy making channels and, and what issues are discussed. Uh, and it came from a, a broader interest in looking at uh, the, uh, the capacity for civil society organisations to shape policy outcomes mm. through these new democratic arenas because we see similar things taking place in the World Bank, the WTO, the European Union, the United Nations, uh, over the course of the 1990s, these new democratic arenas being established. And what are you counting as civil society? How are you defining it and how is it being defined by others? Uh, it is largely being defined by... Uh, it is a highly contested term and, and I think it's... Uh, and given its strong normative associations, the idea of civil society as a space of a voluntarism and, and doing good. So uh, taking on board those normative associations uh, and uh, looking at uh, who is invoking the term and why. Uh, uh, and in the case of Southeast Asia, uh, so ASEAN refers to these groups as civil society organisations. Uh, mm. So employing that language... Uh, and then effectively looking at social movements and social movement organisations, as it is that term is used more broadly in the in the academic literature. Right. So, I guess a lot of the civil society movements that I'm familiar with in Latin America and the United States, the term gets associated very much with good guys. Yes. You know, with yes. feminists, yeah. with indigenous peoples, with slave descendants, with liberals with peaceniks and so on. Uh, what's the role in it of the right? You know, they have things called social movements, yes, or do we exclude indeed. them from no, it? Do you no, know what I mean? No, I, indeed. And I've just been teaching a unit on social movements this semester, which uh, has been uh, very fun to teach and interesting. But we look at a range of movements. Tea Party, in that particular unit, we looked at the Tea Party movement and, and, and uh, the rise of the right in Europe. Stop going. Okay, right, so let's continue. Sorry about, there was a delay there technologically. Who knows why? This is because GarageBand, which is the software that I use for the podcasts, is an index of Apple's cosmic ambivalence about podcasts. The latest iteration of the software does not permit their recording or editing. So I have to use an older version, which is slightly ah, buggy. Okay. So I apologise to Kelly, but you were just saying to us about how in your job as a professor at the University of Western Australia you've been teaching a course on social movements and I think yes. you're about to say yeah. one of the ones you examined so-called social movement, the Tea Party. Yeah, Tea Party movement and, uh, and uh, the rise of, of uh, the right in Europe, uh, various movements. So looking at movements as uh, people collectively responding to an issue uh, and, and there being some uh, for us some duration of time. So right. it's taking a very broad uh, broad approach looking at, at collective action. Uh, and I, But I think that's a broader approach is much 
more useful than a narrow approach. And so in Southeast Asia, the movements that I've been looking at, the ASEAN yeah. term civil society organisations, so the organisations, uh, the uh, organisational structures within these movements have included uh, what are termed gongos, government organised, non-governmental organisations. So these are groups that are established and or maintained by states and often for the purpose of uh, uh, advancing state interests through these channels mm. and these groups are highly common in the channels for cons consultation that ASEAN has established around various development issues. Is this AstroTurf grassroots or is this real grassroots? Uh, this uh, varies, they vary a lot, uh, uh, yeah a bit of both um, but very much uh, within these spaces, uh, so certainly uh, not just focusing my my uh, analysis on on more progressive, for want of a better term, uh, progressively minded groups. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What sorts of issues are they looking at? So they're organising around things like uh, the rights of migrant workers, uh, the mismanagement of shared resources, sex trafficking, uh, mm -hmm. child prostitution. Uh, a range of issues that are, are, have arisen because of the very, very rapid and predatory mode of capitalist development mm. that has characterised the region uh, in recent decades. Uh, so, uh, organising around those issues. And I guess what I found most interesting in looking at these policy channels is that uh, ASEAN officials very closely regulate who participates in these channels. And the way that this is done in the case of... Uh, uh, annual sectoral forums, for example, that are held for the purpose of bringing together policy makers and uh, civil society organisations. The way that this is managed in terms of who participates is that each uh, country representative to ASEAN, uh, the Committee of Permanent Representatives, they put together a list of organisations that they want to invite. That list is circulated to other members with each having the capacity to strike off whoever they don't want to attend. So it's very readily, who participates in these uh, channels is very readily uh, regulated according to the interests of states. Uh, they do, states also very closely monitor how groups participate in these spaces. So they have another, uh, one of the other channels for participation is the affiliation system where groups can apply to be granted affiliation status and this means that they can participate in some ways uh, in ASEAN policy making but the only guaranteed form of participation is capacity to submit written statements to the Committee of Permanent Representatives. Uh, so very all other forms of participation like gaining access to documents or presenting information at a meeting, these all have to be, uh, requests have to be submitted in writing. Uh, and then ASEAN uh, officials very closely uh, structure the issues that are discussed in these spaces. So mm -hmm. to give the example of uh, ad hoc uh, meetings between government, between ASEAN officials and civil society organisations, groups organising around the disappearance of environmental activists, for example, 
these things are not subject to discussion within an annual Right, it's pretty circumscribed. What about, say, organisations of sex workers, given the issues you've raised about trafficking, child prostitution, presumably sex work, of a more adult... Trafficking is an interesting one because uh, it has had uh, some state support, uh, particularly in Thailand, uh, but so there... Uh, states very keen to appear as though they're doing uh, acting on the issue of trafficking mm. Uh, mm. and ha- so this has been an issue that has been brought into ASEAN discussions um, but obviously Thailand uh, as uh, recent reports uh, um, have come out uh, Thailand is just one case but uh, of many uh, cases where states Officials are very heavily involved in uh, trafficking networks uh, and, and the facilitation of, of trafficking. So uh, that is an interesting one where it looks as though there has been progress and it has been brought into ASEAN discussions, but uh, this has continued alongside the expansion of, well, or continuation, uh, mm. if not the expansion of, of trafficking as an issue. And where can people read? some of your work on this? Uh, so I, I published a book uh, with Palgrave uh, as part of its Critical Studies of the Age Pacific series in 2014 titled ASEAN's Engagement of Civil Society Regulating Dissent uh, and I have various uh, articles published on these topics uh, and related issues uh, in globalisations, contemporary politics and the Pacific Review. Wow. Big time. And what's the next thing? Are you? This sounds like it could be an ongoing project for yeah. life, really. Yes, uh, I keep on being drawn back into it as well, mm. um, despite perhaps not wanting to write so much on these things but, and look at other things. But uh, uh, yeah, so I'm looking at, at the moment a project looking at ASEAN's various new rights agencies, one on human rights, one on the rights of women and children and another on the rights of migrant workers and looking at how these uh, delegated agencies operate and how Mm. they reconfigure Mm. the political process uh, and serve as new targets for advocacy but but ones that are incapacitated from expanding rights Mm. Mm. and protecting rights at the domestic level. And I had two other questions if that's okay, if you don't mind. And by all means, offer anything else you'd like. My first one is... I've always thought of the response to the Asian economic crisis as being deeply technocratic. There was a famous cover, I think, of Time magazine of Bob Rubin, Larry Summers and some other bastard standing around in their suits with white light and the headline was something like, can these three men save the world? So I saw it as very technocratic in its conception and its solution and I'm, I'm still taken aback by what you've told me and I should have known this about the desire to expand civil society. So my, my question is, given that mistake on my part, what the relationship is between these technocratic fixes yeah. and this expansive notion of participation? So states, uh, as against member states, there's been a regulatory transformation un- um, underway within states and this has been mapped onto what we're seeing within ASEAN now, the development of regulatory networks, uh, this highly technocratic form of a mode of governance and that mm. is uh, replicating in many instances what's happening at the state level. Uh, so there is that very technocratic element or mode of governing 
that is being pursued uh, through mm -hmm. ASEAN's restructure. Uh, what is interesting, I find, about how ASEAN has consulted civil society groups is mm. that it's, it's established these new spaces, but they're very much designed around including those groups that are amenable to, uh, to prevailing interests within ASEAN while marginalising those groups that are not, that are not mm. compatible with that project. So it's creating channels through which uh, 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 groups, uh, there is the appearance of consultation, but only including those groups that subscribe to prevailing views. So I think they, these, are, these are not, uh, we're in, in agreement uh, regarding what is, what is uh, going on. Uh, and I find it's interest, the interest in my research is looking at how these channels have been structured around addressing conflicts that are being presented by activists. So I guess this does relate to my second question, which was how credible do you see this in terms of democratic theory as an expansion of participation? How legitimate is it? You know, what should be the role of civil society and what is the role of civil society in what in many cases are meant to be representatively democratic governments? I, th I think there is a... For me, I find it concerning how these spaces are established and I think it's important to recognise in all of these new democratic arenas that these spaces are established by the institutions themselves so they don't emerge organically or independently of those interests. interests. So in understanding uh, the potential or evaluating the potential for these new democratic arenas uh, to represent more marginalised and excluded uh, views, and how that might shape what, uh, how that might shape institutional reform or policy. Uh, it's uh, yeah, uh, I think they're they're because they are established by institutions. They are. It is the power holders within the, those institutions that mm -hmm. determine reform, and and as a consequence, there is limited capacity for these to have a democratising impact. But yeah, drawing attention to the role of institutions in that process mm. I think is mm. crucial because that is uh, largely overlooked in looking at the capacity of these spaces to widen representation and importantly, space for contestation. So do these become elite, elite discussions? I think largely yes in my research on ASEAN, definitely. But is there a connection to more organic activist questions that flows up? Um, I think uh, in the case of ASEAN, not so much. I'm not. Sure. I, I mm. don't want to speak uh, more generally about the about new democratic arenas, uh, but that capacity is certainly limited because of institutional interests and their ability mm. to organise mm. these according to those, according to prevailing interests. Wow, that's a bit demoralising. It is, We're but supposed to end on a positive note. Well, I can end on a positive note. Oh, you can. Note. All right, very when good. When I was at a, a conference, uh, uh, when I was at uh, a, a conference where I ran into uh, um, activists and I was talking to them about their disenchantment with these uh, policy channels in ASEAN and uh, they said well there is now talk of holding a national uh, a regional day of action where workers simply withdraw their labour and that being a way of responding to uh, to various uh, 
concerns and and organising. So that there is that regionalising aspect mm. to activism mm. and thinking about new ways in which political concerns can be mm. communicated outside of these policy making channels. And that does draw us back very interestingly to where we began actually with the workshop you've been running because you obviously managed to run the rails between your institutionalist political scientist self and your activist self. I'm sure there are plenty of other selves too, but it's interesting the way that they can overlap and also diverge, I suppose, in the way you're going about these things. Yes, I find that quite an interesting balance and a tricky one to manage myself, but yes. Tricky. Maybe you could finish by my asking you just quickly, yeah. what's, a tr what's an example of the trickiness? Uh, in teaching, I think it's important uh, to make sure that uh, I'm don't editorialise, and I, I'm sure, the, and this is a danger I think across all uh, all um, political science teaching, uh, and uh, and and be wary of that. So I, I am conscious, perhaps, that I, in fear of editorialising, that I am uh, perhaps too <laughs> swing things perhaps too the too far the other way. So it's always a, an interesting discussion that I have with students regarding mm. their. Uh, interpretation of, of uh, lecture content and my teaching more generally. Yes. Very interesting. Well, listen, thank you, Kelly, so much for coming into the pod. I'm hoping we get a reasonable product out of this. Sorry about the technological glitch. And I hope that when you've finished reimagining Perth, <laughs> if that process ends, or perhaps at some further point in its development, you might re-enter the pod, maybe with some of your colleagues in the project, to talk about it. And certainly to talk about your ongoing work about ASEAN and civil society. Great, thanks, Jamie. Thanks.